If you're if you were in VBS this past week, you know the uh, the motions in. So do them. Yes. <laughs> 
Awesome, right? Well, let's continue worshiping together. Yes. And I was buried beneath my shame.
I needed rescue, my sin was heavy, but chains break at the weight of your glory. I needed shelter, I was an orphan, now you call me a citizen of heaven. together right give it up for the hype team man that's awesome go ahead and have a seat please good morning and happy father's day we are so glad you chose to worship with us today my name is julie and i'm on the worship team here at westgate thank you so much for joining us right now is a great time to make sure you have your sermon notes ready those are always available on the entrance tables from one of our ushers or you can find them on the westgate app if you're a guest here today, we are especially excited that you are here. We hope you'll find Westgate a place where you can easily and deeply get connected into relationships that will help you grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus. One of the first steps in getting connected into the life of our church is to fill out a connect card. You'll find it in the pew in front of you. Take a moment and fill that out. And at the end of the service, head out to the main entrance and to our guest center where there's a host who has some simple information about how to get connected at Westgate, along with a small gift just to say thank you for being here. Even if you've been attending Westgate for a while, we'd love to invite you to fill out the Connect card. Let us know if you have any prayer requests. We love the opportunity to pray for our church family each week. Then drop your card in the offering bucket when it's passed later in the service. The Connect card is also available on our Westgate app. And now here are a few reminders for things you don't want to miss. Today is Father's Day, and we recognize that there are a great variety of fathers in the world. We know everyone's experience with their father or with being a father is unique, with both good and bad moments. But no matter what, we can all count on having a heavenly father who loves us unconditionally and wants a relationship with us forever. Our hope and prayer today isn't just for the dads, but for all the men here at Westgate. We're praying for you to stay strong in your faith and to be leading examples of what it means to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To celebrate all of the men at Westgate, we've got a special treat. After service, head on over to the atrium or to the main lobby to enjoy a classic root beer float. We appreciate you. 
Westgate Chapel is gearing up for an exciting night out at the ballpark this summer 2023. That's right, we're talking about a game between the Toledo Mud Hens and the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, and it's happening on Friday, July 21st at Fifth Third Field in Toledo. Get ready to witness some thrilling action and cheer for your favorite team as we've reserved a large section for our church family to enjoy the experience together. But wait, there's more. This event isn't just about baseball. It's a perfect opportunity for you to invite your neighbors and introduce them to our church family and friends. Tickets are only $14 and you can easily get your hands on them by scanning the QR code on any of our promotional materials. But don't wait, tickets in our section will be available to the general public on Saturday, July 1st. So be sure to snag yours before then. Be part of this unforgettable night out at the ballpark. Game time is at 7.05. See you there. Please remember to pray for our students and leaders as they will be serving in various capacities this week all the way in Costa Rica as part of our high school missions trip and a few hours down the road in Warren, Ohio as part of Middle School Serve. Pray for students to see beyond themselves and the experience of a new place and that God will reveal himself to them in a new way this week. Pray for gospel conversations, the Holy Spirit to be moving powerfully, students' hearts to be challenged, and their faith to be put into action now and when they return. Please remember to pray for the leaders as well as they are being challenged themselves this week to lead and disciple students well. Thank you so much for your prayers. That's all for this week, but that's not all we've got going on at Westgate. If you're looking for more details about what's happening, you can check out our Westgate app or head over to our website at westgatechapel.org events. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram too. We'd love to connect with you there. And now let's hear some exciting updates and celebrate all that God did this past week at VBS. Good morning. Okay, we got to do that again. There's kids in this room. I know we can be louder than that. Good morning. Good morning. Woo. I am so glad to see all of you. Uh, my name is Marlena Burrell. I am the director of kids ministry here, and this is Julianne. And we have had an incredible week of VBS. Uh, raise your hand, kids. If you were in here, go ahead and shout out to me if you were here at VBS this week. Woo woo. Woo woo. Awesome. We had an amazing time, and we have a few numbers to share with you. Um, and the most important thing that I want you to know is that we felt your prayers. I know that we had a lot of, we had illness, we had a lot of different things, but we know that God was working and we have some exciting things to tell you about what that looked like. So the first number I have for you is three. Watch the video. Oh, watch the video? we should watch the video. Maybe, watch should we watch the video? Thank you, Julianne. Yes, we are going to give you a little sneak peek of what our week looked like. Go ahead and take a look. director of kids ministry here at Westgate Chapel. This week we have spent five incredible days with over 300 kids playing large group games, having God's word in their heart, and having some incredible art experiences. This year's theme is called Twist and Turns, how trusting in Jesus really does change the game. Thank you 
so much to all those that participated to make BBS 2023 happen. We can't wait to do it again next year. thing so thank you for that so that was a great week and we actually our first number that I want to share with you is that we had 333 kids registered to be here this last week which is incredible thank you Jesus compared to our like 260 last year and so God and God did that through you guys so many of these people came and they wrote on that they had been invited by a neighbor and that, guys, is how we reach our community for Christ. And so that 333, also, if you're a volunteer, I know I embarrassed you last week, but I need you to stand up. If you were a student or adult volunteer who worked Woo-hoo. this week, go ahead and stand thank up. Thank you, thank you. If you guys could just thank them. We had 158 student and adult volunteers who spent their Amazing. whole week pouring into, and this is not, it's fun, but it's not easy. And so thank you guys so much for doing that. Um, the other thing I wanted to share with you is that we have one of my favorite things about VBS is coin races. And so Julianne is going to share a little bit about the coin races. Yeah. So again, we want to, we say Jesus is for everyone. And so we take a coin race. We every day get points towards purple and green towards, um, a battle of who gets slimed, which is awesome. But more importantly, we want Jesus for everyone. And so this year, our Missions Moment Spotlight was for the Carey family in Germany. So they are our international workers. They've been with us this year. And then when on July 9th, we're going to send them back. We'll have a farewell and send them with some funds from the penny races, from the coin wars, uh, to fill their new church. So if you guys remember the story, the Careys went to Varhen. There was no church. Then they started a house church. Then they've been renting a place. And now they have their own building for the church in Vahran community, which is a ginormous deal. And you see it's empty. And so these kids got to, we're going to send our funds to build the kids space at the Internationale Gemeinde Vahran in Germany. And so let's, give me a drum roll on how much money we raised. Drum roll, drum roll, drum roll. We had, let's read it together, 2,000, 2,000, uh, uh. $2,596 come in. That's amazing. That's so great. You'll get to hear more when we, when we pray the carries out in July 9th about what they're going to do with those funds. But thank you. 
Yeah, and that really is like, I know that that money, you know, came from parents and grandparents' hands. And so thank you so much. It's amazing what kids, when they're motivated by getting to slime somebody, and Pastor Dan got slimed this week. So it's amazing what they can do. And so I'm so grateful that we got to do that together. Um, the last thing I'm going to share with you is that, again, we want kids to have fun. We want this to be a place where they feel welcome, that they can come and maybe experience church for the very first time. But mostly, we want kids to hear the good news about who Jesus is. And we had 16 kids accept Christ for the first time this week. So give it up to God for that. Thank you, Jesus. Because, again, that's the whole reason. I talked to you guys last week. The whole reason we want to do this is to make him famous. And I really believe that with your contributions and with the help of our volunteers that we did that. And VBS is the same week every year. So you can all mark your calendars now because if we want to keep being open to our community and letting whatever kid wants to come in here, we are going to need your help to do it again next year. So mark your calendars, uh, make sure that we're available. And then the last thing I wanted to say is if you took part in our VBS giving game, uh, we raised about $2,500 worth of either items or cash donations that you guys so generously gave, which enabled us to continue to offer a free VBS. So thank you if you participated in that. I really appreciate that um, because that enabled us to be able to do that. And the last thing I want to say is that this worship team, some that were here and some that were not, that are not on the stage right now, they wrote that song, that twist and turn song. And they seriously, and I know it's like, he's my husband. I get that part. And so he did it for me. But they worked so hard to not just come lead our kids in music, but to lead them in worship. And guys, these kids worshiped and it was so great to see. So again, thank you so much for praying for us. Thank you for uh, supporting us this last week. It was a great week. And do you care if I just pray really quick for us? Okay. Dear God, we thank you so much for this incredible week and that you were made famous and that kids were in this very room shouting your name. Lord, we ask that you continue to work in their hearts to develop the things that they've heard, that those kids, that there was just a seed planted that you would continue to help that grow. Thank you for this church and their generosity to help us do this every year. And Lord, as we continue to um, try to reach our neighbors and our nations for you, Lord, that you would just help us to keep that at the front four of our mind. Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Okay, now right now I want everybody to stand up. There are lots of kids in this room. I want you to find a kid and ask them what their favorite candy is. Ready, set, go.
God, you are worthy. Father, you are worthy of all the praise, all the adoration, Lord, all the honor. You are why we gather here. You are why we sing to you. And you're why we do these motions, God. For every kid in here, God, may you draw them closer to you, God, and continue to teach each and every one of us, God, what it means to worship you. In spirit and in truth, Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you so much. We can worship you together. Amen.
Father, we just praise you. We thank you, Lord, that we can meet here together today because you are such a great, great Father. Lord, we love you with our whole heart. Lord, thank you for the example that you have provided to us as a Father, the love that you show us, that you give us each day. It's the greatest love that anyone could ever know. 
Lord, you sent your son to die for us, giving the ultimate sacrifice as a father. And Lord, we just thank you for that. I pray this morning, Lord, that if there is someone here that doesn't know that love, that doesn't know you as their father, that they would come to know you, that they would make that decision. Lord, I lift up to you the rest of our service this morning, Lord, our praise, our worship, these words that you have to speak through, Rob. Lord, help us to apply those and help us to just draw closer to you, Lord, so that we can just deepen our relationship with you. I ask for your blessing that you would be with all of these teams this week, these students serving in Warren and also with the leaders and also in Costa Rica. Lord, I pray that all of these efforts would further your kingdom and that you would help us to look for and seek out and follow you in opportunities that you give us this week. Lord, I also ask that you bless this offering this morning and that you would continue to use it to further your kingdom and to bring glory to you. We love you. We thank you. We lift your name in praise because you are such a great father. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's continue with our worship and passing the buckets for our offering and gifts. church family. How are you today? It's good to be here. Lots of great things uh, we've been talking about this morning. And uh, as we uh, move into our time in the Word together, before we do, had three things again that I just want to draw your attention to, uh, to be praying for uh, over this week and uh, the weeks to come. Uh, the first thing is this, is that many of you uh, probably and should have received an email from me this week. Uh, as a reminder, last April, I shared with you that um, our church leadership had been taking time uh, just to evaluate our giving levels uh, exiting the pandemic. And also, uh, we took some time to really consider and pray through our stewardship of the resources that God has given us. And through that, you remember that I shared with you in April that uh, the decision, the hard decision was made by our leadership that we would need to scale back our church staffing levels in order to reduce our overall spending uh, annually by about 5% just to bring our staffing more in line uh, with where we are with our giving. And if you received that email this week, you would know that uh, the result of that decision was uh, that Kendra Sankovich, our spiritual growth director, is going to be wrapping up her time here at Westgate uh, this coming August. And uh, it's very, very hard. Kendra has served so faithfully and especially excellently in her role. Uh, here within our church, and the Lord has gifted her in many incredible ways. She has a great gift of teaching. Uh, she has such a heart for discipling uh, people and coming alongside of them, and uh, we want to be 
prayerful together. Just to invite you also to be prayerful with us uh, over where the place is that God has next for Kendra. He has gifted her, and we know and believe that he has got an incredible landing spot for her to continue serving uh, him in ministry. And so I want to invite you just to join us uh, in prayer. Again, she'll be with us uh, through, uh, through August. And then also, uh, just a reminder, as you have heard a number of times this morning, we would like to invite you to continue praying this week for our Costa Rica mission team. Uh, they, after a number of delays, arrived safely very early, very, very early Saturday morning. Uh, we even got, Rochelle got a phone call from our daughter who is there, and she was talking a lot about the big bugs and spiders in the places that they are sleeping. And, you know, the first thought that crossed my mind was she's going to be terrified all week long. And the second thought was, God can use big spiders to bring kids to Jesus. So I am, I am hoping that they are moved out of their comfort zone and uh, as well be praying for us with our students. You know, the incredible thing is that a mission trip, we have such a cool opportunity to go and share the love of Jesus with people all around the world. And that can shape a young person's worldview. And that's what we're praying for, that they would have a credible impact, but that God would also maybe potentially even call some of these do a life of serving him in ministry, whether that's professionally, most definitely with all of their heart and life within the church. And so be praying over that and also be praying over Pastor Dan and our middle school students as they head off to Warren, Ohio this week uh, with Middle School Serve. They are going to have a fantastic week again, serving with a local church in that community and sharing the love of Jesus with others. So many things to be praying for. Now, as we turn our hearts and our minds uh, to the word of God together, I'd encourage you to take your Bibles and open with me. If you have them, to mark chapter 8, whether that's your physical Bible or in your, your apps. Uh, you also have the passage to follow along with this morning on the screen. But we have been in a series together for a number of weeks entitled, Who Do You Say I Am? It is a study through the book of Mark, and uh, we have reached this morning the halfway point, literally and thematically. Uh, literally uh, eight chapters in, there are 16 chapters in the book of Mark, and uh, you know, as I was thinking about this and our kids finishing up school and taking final tests, I thought no better thing to do this morning than have a little game of our own and take a little midterm exam to see how much you have retained over these last eight weeks. And so we're going to have a little bit of fun. Kids, you uh, students, you guys can play along as well. Do your best. I've got some multiple choice questions I'm going to put up on the screen. If you get an answer correct, give yourself a point and uh, we'll just have a little bit of fun-natured uh, competition here to see who can get the most points. Are you ready? Put your mark brains on. Here we go. First question. I call this a softball question. Hopefully you'll get the answer correct. Number one, of the four Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible, Mark was written what? First, second, third, or fourth? A, B, C, or D? Shout out your answer. What do you think? A, B, C, or D? All right. Register your answer and give yourself a point if you said... Mark was written first out of the four Gospels. And uh, next question, second. Here we go. Mark, who wrote the book of Mark, was a companion of who? Letter A, Paul. Letter B, Peter. Letter C, Timothy. Or letter D, John. Who was he a traveling companion with? 
Shout out your answer, A, B, C, or D. Register. Here we go. The answer is B, Peter. As we began the series, we'll be reminded that uh, what we talked about is that Mark likely traveled with Peter and was writing down his firsthand accounts of his experiences with Jesus, uh, which is what we have now here in the Gospel of Mark. All right, give yourself a point. Number three, in which chapter does Jesus heal the paralytic? Now, do not open your Bibles and cheat, all right? But what chapter does Jesus heal the paralytic? Chapter chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, or chapter 6? A, B, C, or D? Register your answer in your mind and give yourself a point if you said letter B, chapter 2. Give yourself a point. All right, here we go. How many kids are beating their parents right now? I just want to know. Okay, good, good, good. A few of you. Next question, number four. We talked a lot about how Jesus and his disciples were in uh, Galilee, uh, specifically in Caesarea. And Caesarea is located on what shoreline of the Sea of Galilee? The southeastern, the northwestern, the southwestern, or the northeastern? Which shoreline does Caesarea sit on on the Sea of Galilee? Or Capernaum. I was reading this. Thank you for catching that. Capernaum. That was typed in wrong. Probably by me. Capernaum. Which shoreline is it? A, B, C, or D? The answer is B, the northwest. Northwest. Next, number five, how many feet below sea level is the Sea of Galilee? We talked about the fact that when storms would rise up on the Sea of Galilee, like when Jesus' disciples were in the boat, that the Sea of Galilee sits below sea level, and there's hot air that rises, but then cold air comes down off the mountains, and when they clash, would cause these incredible windstorms. How many feet below sea level is the Sea of Galilee? Give yourself a point if you said... Letter B, 700, 700. All right, two more and we're done here. Number six, when the boat landed, when, when Jesus and his disciples encounter the storm and then Jesus stops it, when the boat lands, they came to a region that was known for showcasing Hellenistic culture and ideals, Greek culture and ideals. How many cities made up this region? Was it letter A, 7, letter B, 10, letter C, 13, or letter D, 15? Register your answer. If you know the name of these cities collectively, then you know the answer. It is the Decapolis, so the answer is 10. 10 cities, the Decapolis. Last one, number seven. Give yourself five points. This is non-multiple choice. You need to know this by memory. What is the literal translation of the Greek word for hypocrites that we talked about last Sunday when Jesus referred to the Pharisees and the scribes. What is the literal translation of the Greek word for hypocrites? Do you know what it is? Register an answer in your mind. And the answer is play actor. Anybody get that correct or say an actor? We got like two, three, four. Oh, look at that. You guys listen. Bonus points. I like that. Let me ask a question. How many of you got all of the questions right? Anybody here? Okay, good. Somebody lied in the first service. (laughs) I know they lied. Okay. How many people got at least six right? At least six right. Okay, we got a few of you. All right, excellent job. Good job on passing your midterm. Uh, What's interesting, as you think about it, 
is that as we have been going through the book of Mark together in these first eight chapters, we've reached the midpoint of the book. And what you're going to find in our passage this morning in chapter eight is that Peter and the disciples are in a sense going to face their own type of midterm with Jesus. He has a couple of really important questions that he's going to ask, and these questions are essential questions that not only must be answered by the disciples, but really is questions that we must answer for ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, look with me in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. In verse 27, it says this, that Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you have your notes, letter A, what you're going to see as we begin to read the passage this morning is that it appears that Jesus has taken his disciples to a location where they're going to get a reprieve from the crowds and also from the religious leaders. You'll remember that as they were ministering in and around the Galilee region and Capernaum and, and, and other cities, that they were constantly being followed by the crowds. The crowds had heard the incredible teaching of Jesus and wanted to continue to get within an earshot to hear what he might teach and what he might say because he spoke with such great authority. As well, they heard about and even witnessed and some even experienced Jesus' miracles as he would heal numerous people and people wanted to be a part of that. So were the throngs of people that were constantly following. But remember that the religious leaders were also following very closely behind as we talked about last week. We even read that contingents of Pharisees and religious leaders were being sent up from Jerusalem to come and find out what was was going on with Jesus and challenging him because one, they were threatened. They were supposed to be the religious elite that would teach the people about what it meant to follow God. And now Jesus is kind of coming in and everybody is following after him and they don't like what they see. So they're challenging Jesus at the same time. What it appears is happening is that Jesus and his disciples have a moment to get a reprieve from all of those crowds and the religious leaders to take a moment of rest. We've read that there were times when Jesus and the disciples went out onto the boat into the lake, they were looking for a moment of rest. And it seems that as they go and they travel, as the passage tells us, to Caesarea Philippi, that really what Jesus is going to do is find an intimate time here to teach his disciples a little bit more about who he is than what they've already experienced. Now, to give you some context, right before this passage this morning, Jesus has been doing his ministry in the northern Galilee area, specifically in a place called called Bethsaida. Jesus in Bethsaida, right before our passage, heals a blind man, a very incredible uh, miracle that he did. But then the passage tells us, and you can see this on the screen behind me, uh, a small video that we'll play. I want to give you some context about where this took place. Bethsaida would sit right at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And Caesarea Philippi, where he and his disciples are going, is about a 25-mile journey north. It would take uh, uh, basically a whole day to make this journey. Caesarea Philippi sat at the very base of Mount Hermon. We talked about Mount Hermon being the place where winds would rush down off of the mountain onto the Sea of Galilee. And as 
they make this day's journey up there, what you would come to find is that Caesarea Philippi was a very beautiful area. It was known for its underground springs, the water that would flow off of Mount Hermon into the Sea of Galilee. It was considered to be one of the major tributaries that filled the Sea of Galilee and also ran into the Jordan River. When I had the opportunity to travel there a number of years ago, as you'll see on the screen in this next video, uh, there is a beautiful waterfall that is found there in, uh, in Caesarea Philippi called the Banyas Waterfall. And uh, again, all of these, this water would come pouring out and flowing down into the Sea of Galilee and into the Jordan River. And it was incredible, and it was one of the most beautiful places that I think I had ever gone to see. If I'm thinking of a place where I want to get a reprieve from the crowds and from the religious leaders, this might be it. It might be the place where I would like to go and have this quiet moment. But what we also see, letter B, is this truth that we need to know about Caesarea Philippi, that the area and the villages that surrounded it was an unlikely place for a bunch of Jewish men to be hanging out together. See, the city was largely populated by Gentiles, and so it was filled with pagan idols. Again, you'll see a video that's playing behind me, and in this video, you'll see that Caesarea Philippi tucked up against Mount Hermon. It was a place that was known for idol worship. It was originally named Peneus, which uh, was a play on the Greek mythological god Pan. Pan was kind of a half goat, half human uh, looking creature that played a magical little flute. Uh, he was revered as someone who was, uh, was revered as, as, as a guardian of flocks, a guardian of nature. He was also a fertility god and he was worshipped in a grotto like what you see here on the screen. These outcroppings uh, in Caesarea Philippi were places where they would have taken and and they would have set their idols to the Greek god Pan and where they would worship him. And as well, what you see not only from this picture, but if you look at the next picture, it's a picture of what they believe Caesarea Philippi would have looked like at the time of Jesus. You have the cave that is on that back left side where, again, they would worship the god Pan. On the front side of that, there was the temple of Augustus. Then next to that, there was the grotto where you saw the outcroppings in the wall where they would worship the god Pan. Then next to that was the court of Pan. Next to that was the temple of Zeus who was considered to be the chief deity of the pantheon who they worshipped as the sky and weather god. Then next to that was the court of Nemesis who was a goddess of vengeance. And then they would have on the far right a tomb of goats and also the temple of Pan and the dancing goats. What it helps you to see is that these people in Caesarea Philippi not only worship many gods but if you take it to its very core there was a hungering to know who was providing power for life and to seek after that. And it's on this journey with Jesus and his disciples to this specific region where people are seeking after God in so many different ways with a lack of understanding of who God is that Jesus would ask two very important questions of his disciples. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27b, it says, On the way, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? In other words, let her see the first test question that Jesus asks is, what are people's opinions about me and about who I am? 
As we said from the very beginning, this has been the very central question of the first half of the Gospel of Mark. The multitudes have been amazed with Jesus. They have encountered his teaching that was unlike any teaching they had ever heard. They have seen his miracles as the, as the blind would receive sight, the lame would walk, those who had leprosy, their skin would be healed, he would raise the dead, incredible things that are taking place. The people would, would look at Jesus and go, wow, this is incredible. Imagine what you would think if you didn't have the context that we have today and you saw that type of power in an individual, power over the physical things of this world, over the spiritual realm, over so many different things. It's incredible. And Jesus says, what do people think about who I am? And what is the response of the disciples? As you continue reading, it says that they told him, some people think John the Baptist. Other people think that you're Elijah. And others think that you're one of the prophets. Now, what's interesting, when they say that they think he was John the Baptist, it was Herod, if you remember, who had murdered John the Baptist. And Herod, we, we learn, feared that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead in order to avenge his murder. And so Herod believed that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist. And that had spread amongst the populace and was one of the ideas that people had. People also believed that there was, a, there was a lot of speculation in Judaism about Elijah returning, coming out of Malachi in the Old Testament, chapter 3, verse 1, or chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The Jews believed that the prophet Elijah would one day return before the vengeance of the Lord. And so some people thought that maybe Jesus was Elijah. As well, there were others who believed that he was a prophet, not just a prophet in a general sense, but one of the Old Testament prophets who had come again. But what's interesting, in all of these different options that the disciples give, notice that not a single option was that the people believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But there were a lot of things that they did think. And when I look at this passage, I think about the fact that there are many opinions today as well about who people think Jesus was or is inside and outside of the church. There are some people that believe Jesus was nothing more than a good man who walked the earth and did good things for people. There are others who believe that Jesus was a really great teacher who taught some really good, important life lessons that we should follow that can better our lives. There are other religions that teach that he was a prophet, that he was a prophet that had come into this world and had some really great things as well to teach and say. There are still other people in our world today who believe that Jesus is nothing more than a fake, a fraud, or a liar, that he wasn't real, a real person. There are those who believe that Jesus was a lunatic, that Jesus was one of those people that ran around this world thinking that he was God and then allowed himself to be put on a cross. Only a crazy man could do something like that. And yet then there are people that look and they read the scripture and they come to a place of understanding of who Jesus was, that they would very boldly declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are so many options today about who Jesus was or is that people believe. But the real question that we've been talking about from the very beginning of this series is who do you believe that Jesus is? Personally, who do you believe he is? Because this is the single most important question you will ever answer in your lifetime. Your answer to this question will determine your life today. It'll determine how you live your life this week and for the rest of your life. And what you believe to be true about that question will impact all of eternity for yourself. 
And I venture to guess that this morning there are some people here who maybe are new to church or new to Westgate, or maybe you're visiting for the first time and you've never really seen who Jesus is. My prayer for you today is that your eyes would be opened up, that God would open your eyes in a way that you weren't expecting to see who Jesus really is. And yet I also expect that there are many people that are here this morning that have been around church for a long time. Maybe you grew up in the church or have been in it most of your life, but you still really haven't seen who Jesus really is. You've seen, maybe even put your faith in a picture of Jesus that is either inaccurate or incomplete at best. And you need Jesus to open your eyes for the first time or in a fresh way to experience him and to understand and see who he really is. Why do I say this? Because as much time as the disciples have spent with Jesus, listening to his teaching, experiencing his power as he heals, as he calms the storms, as he shows his power over the spiritual realm. In all of these things, they are having one-on-one interaction and dialogue with Jesus. And what we see in this passage is that even though they understood who Jesus was to a degree, they still have an incomplete or a distorted understanding at best. And we see that as we continue in this passage, because Jesus says, who do people say that I am? But then he says in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, then he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And what's interesting about this sentence in the Greek is that oftentimes when you see a word like, who do you say that I am? The word you is a very specific word, but it's often not a word in the text. You just understand that it's there because the verb ending indicates whether or not the verb is in the first, the second, or the third person. And when it's in the second person, like it is in this text, you automatically know that the verb is referring to you second person. But what's interesting is that this is a doubly emphatic statement that Jesus makes because oftentimes you won't see the Greek word humes, which means you, paired together like this. In other words, Jesus is making a very important statement. What you believe, you about me, not the crowds, not other people, what you believe is the most important thing here. And it's interesting because as Jesus asks them this question, what do you believe about me? You can almost feel in the answer that Peter is going to give the giddiness that he had when it comes to answering this question. It's like Jesus says, who do you say that I am? You can feel like Peter going like, right here, Jesus, look at me, answer me, pick me, let me answer this question, right? When I was a young kid and I was in school, I can remember in fourth grade, my teacher came in, she, uh, she was with her husband and they were teaching us about scuba diving because that's something they did, brought in all of their gear, and then she asked us the question, uh, uh, what does the word scuba mean? Because it's an acronym for something, and no joke, like literally the night before I've been watching the facts of life, uh, I know that that made me, makes me really old, by the way. Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but some of you are laughing with me, okay? So watching the facts of life, and this question was asked of Tootie by Mrs. Garrett, and Tootie says, stop that. Tootie literally says, scuba means what? Self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. And for whatever reason, I memorized that. When my teacher asked that question, I am jumping up and down. Call on me. Call on me. I know the answer. Can you get the feeling here of Peter as Jesus says, well, this is what everybody else says, but what about you? And what's what's Peter's reply? You are the Christ. You are the Christ. 
The very first time that we see in Scripture that one of the disciples or any human being declares that Jesus is the Christ. And remember, Christ is not simply the last name of Jesus, okay? Christ was a title that was given to Jesus. The word Christ meant anointed one. It was constantly used of a person It was a royal title that was actually used in Old Testament times to refer to a divinely appointed king of Israel, and then later was uh, was used of a great eschatological deliverer and ruler that the Jews desperately waited for. The other word that was used was what? The Messiah. They were waiting for the Christ or the Messiah, the one who would come and save them. And Peter cannot get enough of himself as he shares this answer, a profound moment up to this point, the only people that had declared this was who? God at Jesus' baptism and the demons when Jesus cast the demons out of the garrison demoniac. And now here's Peter making this profound statement, however, as exciting as this moment seems and like Peter has aced the test, things take a small turn. Because what Jesus begins to do from this point is reveal more of who he is and more of his mission. And what it appears is that Peter actually still has a whole lot to learn. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, if you're reading along with me, it says this. It says that he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days that he would rise again. And he said this plainly, clearly, without a shadow of a doubt. Letter A in your notes, what has been suspected because of things that Jesus had said or intimated now becomes plain. Jesus is a different kind of king than what the disciples expected. And this marks a significant shift in Mark's gospel. It's the reason that next week we'll begin a whole new series with a whole new theme in the second half of the book of Mark because there's this shift that takes place as Jesus now begins to reveal not just his power and that he's been divinely sent by God, but the depth of the reason that he has been sent by God and the mission that he is on. What does he say to his disciples? Number one, that he must suffer many things. Never in Israel had it been heard before that the Messiah would have to suffer. There is the image that we have in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53 of the suffering servant, but there is absolutely no evidence that in Judaism that suffering was ever associated with the Messiah, actually quite the opposite. And also using the word must, when Jesus said that he must suffer many things, Jesus indicates that the suffering that he would endure would be an unchangeable part of God's plan, that he must do this. It must be something that happens. So he says that he must suffer many things. Number two, he says that he'll be rejected by the religious authorities. The religious authorities that are listed in this passage make up the Jewish Sanhedrin. There were 70 members, if you will, or elders of the ruling council, various Sadducees and various Pharisees. You have the chief priests who are the leading members of the high priestly family. You have the scribes who were legal experts and advisors to the Sanhedrin. All of them represented the official seat of religious power amongst the Jews. They were the top. And what Jesus says to his disciples, which would have been striking, 
is that Jesus would be rejected by the religious elite who were supposed to be leading people to God and eagerly awaiting for the Messiah. And then number three, he says that not only would they reject him, but he would be unjustly killed. In other words, all of these religious elite and leaders would hatefully orchestrate Jesus' execution, that they would make deliberate steps to make sure that he was put away with. And finally, number four, that he would be raised from the dead. And none of this would make sense to the disciples and what they believed to be true about who the Messiah would be. And Jesus teaches them something very difficult. But here's the problem. Peter's response to Jesus' teaching was not positive. It tells us in Mark chapter 8, verse 32, the second half, it says that after Jesus taught them these things, that Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. Peter makes clear that he has completely different plans for Jesus. The word that's used here where it says that Peter rebuked implies a level of authoritative judgment from a superior to someone that is under their command or oversight. You know, if you're a kid in the room and your parents get mad at you and they scold you for doing something wrong, you might call that a rebuke, right? Your parents are in charge. They have a position of power and they tell you, hey, you can't be doing this thing because there's authority that is there. Well, it's interesting and intriguing that what Peter actually does, and it actually should be shocking to us, is that he has the audacity to elevate his own authority above Jesus. He's now elevated himself above his rabbi, the one who is the creator of all things, the person who he has just declared is the Messiah sent from God. He has now put himself in a place of authority over him and telling him that this will never happen. Why? Because Peter and the disciples had a very different idea about who they wanted Jesus to be. When you look at the historical understanding of who they believed the Messiah would be, they were looking for a political Messiah, someone who would save their nation and make Israel great again. They were looking for a militaristic Messiah who would give them power, power over their, their oppressors, specifically over Rome by overthrowing Rome. They were looking for a Messiah who would make them prosperous, who would increase and restore their wealth, their comfort, and their prosperity in life. They were looking for a Messiah who would not demand their lives because they wanted to continue the lives that they had just in a better position. But here's the thing. Before we're too hard on Peter and too hard on the disciples for what they were looking for, maybe we should pause and consider that if we aren't careful, there are many times that we have had similar plans or ideas about who Jesus really is. As you think of those list of four things that the disciples believed about who the Messiah would be, you could also come to an understanding that this could also be a definition of American Christianity today. There are many times that we can be pretty zealous about our own ideas about how to find a political savior for our own nation. Rather than putting our hope and our trust and our faith in God, we look to common men to find our saving. We can do all sorts of things in this life and in this world in pursuit of worldly power, often at the expense of others. At times, we have created, even in the church, a version of Christianity that revolves around prosperity. And I'm not just talking about the prosperity gospel, which is one piece where we believe that if you follow Jesus and you're one of his followers, that you will experience great wealth and prosperity in this life. 
But I want you to think about how that also trickles into how we see our own suffering in this world. We begin to question God when we experience trials and difficulty because our life is not going quite the way we planned for it to go. And so we begin to question whether or not he has got the right plan, right? Because our prosperity is being affected. As well, when our prosperity is infringed upon, not only do we buckle and question God's plan, but you also see in the church today that people will dilute what it means to actually follow Christ. I say these things to open up our eyes to say, maybe it's not just the disciples, but it's us as well that needs to have a more full picture and understanding of who Jesus really is. It has become really easy in this world to create our own definition, our own ideas, according to the things that we want of who we believe Jesus is and what he wants for our life, rather than turning to him and following after him in his word. And so what happens here as Peter makes this bold rebuke of Jesus? It tells us in Mark chapter 8, verse 33, that Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and he also rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said to him. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And let her see what we see here is this, is that Jesus' response was a devastating dose of reality. When our human terms conflict with the things of God, we have placed Satan in the driver's seat. For Peter, he could not comprehend a Messiah who would suffer and die. Why? Because in his mind, the Messiah was coming to give him a better life on earth. He did not understand the plans of God that God determined to come and give him something that was far better. A Messiah and a Savior that would save him from his sin, not just in this life, but for all of eternity. And Jesus looks at him and says, when you move outside of my plans for you, he says, he literally says, get behind me, Satan. Satan, you are the one that is trying to stop the plans that God has here. And I would say the same thing for us, that when we view God on our terms, when we make up our own definition of who he is, when we trust him only when it is convenient, we allow Satan to have a place in that driver's seat. When we allow our human terms to conflict with the things of God and his purposes for our life. But what I love about this passage is the continued grace that Jesus shows even in moments of rebuke. You see, what we need to do is this, understand who, understand who Jesus is. When we understand who Jesus is, it leads us to a crossroads in our life. And he does this with his disciples as they begin to understand more and more of who he is. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, it says this, that Jesus called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself. I've now revealed all of who I am and everything to you. And it's going to be a difficult road for me. And if you want to follow, then you must deny yourself. Letter A, following Jesus means exchanging our life plans for his. The word deny that is used here means to disown completely. In other words, to look at the plans that we have for our life and the things that we desire and say, I would give them all up in order to follow Jesus because of what he has for me. He calls us to leave a life of seeking the things of this world for our, hope, our prosperity, our hope, our fulfillment, and to follow him. 
And he follows that up by saying, not only must you deny yourself, but he says that you must also take up your cross and follow me. Letter B in your notes, following Jesus means taking up our cross. Rather than seeking prosperity and ease, Jesus' followers must be willing to endure persecution. There's no doubt that when Jesus said these words that his disciples would have a very clear picture of crucifixion in their mind, of the evil and horrific way that the Romans would kill another person. And Jesus made abundantly clear that to follow him meant that there would also be suffering that would be endured by his disciples. But what he wants them to know is that following of him would lead to a life that is far more fulfilling than anything that they could have ever experienced. Following Jesus meant exchanging our life plans for his. It means taking up our cross, but let her see also following Jesus, he says, means choosing which life actually holds more value. Mark chapter eight, verses 35 through 36 says it this way. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What Jesus does in this moment, if you can see it, is he looks at his disciples and says, you have a choice that is sitting before you. You have now come to an understanding of who I am of not just the power and the authority I have and that I've been sent by God, but the calling that God has been placed on my life to give my life for the salvation of the world. And when you come to a greater understanding and knowledge of who Jesus is, it brings all of us to that crossroads of saying, what has more value to me? Following the things and the ways of this world or following hard after God? Will you choose to follow after things in this world that are broken, that will always break, though you try to find your fulfillment in them, you will never be able to keep them. And when you die, you can't take them with you. Or does Jesus hold more value because you know that when you place your faith and trust in him, that you will receive the gift of eternal life and spend forever with him in heaven with all sickness and all sin and all evil and all pain and all sadness and all trials and everything that breaks us in this life completely gone and wiped away where we will live forever in perfect unity with the Father in heaven. And what Jesus asks us to do is to take these two things and to place them on the scales and weigh which one holds more value. And I would ask you that question this morning as we close. We began this series by saying what you believe to be true about Jesus will absolutely impact the way that you worship him. And so who is Jesus to you? As you read the scriptures, who is he? And as you come to a fuller understanding of who he is, how does that impact the way that you choose to worship him or not? I want you to think about these two questions and reflect on them today and this week. How has this study in Mark affected your understanding of who Jesus is so far as we reach the halfway point? And letter B, how is your understanding of who Jesus is impacting how you worship him every day? 
with your whole heart and your whole life. Father, I thank you for our time in your word. And I thank you, Lord, for its instruction to us. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us Jesus and that we've been able to go on this journey with Mark and with the disciples to see this picture of who Jesus is. And God, as we have this clearer picture of your son, it truly does bring us to a deciding point of whether or not we will surrender our hearts to you, whether we'll surrender them at all, or whether we'll kind of try to do it half-heartedly in the world and half-heartedly for your son. And God, I pray that as we come to this deeper understanding, that you would drive all of our hearts to a place of complete surrender, of denying ourself, of letting our life go so that we can receive all that you have for us. But I know that it can only begin when we can truly answer the question, who we believe you are. And so cement that in our hearts today, God, and draw us to a place of yielding and surrender and full worship of you. In Jesus' name, amen.
As we close our service this morning, just a few things for you. If there are any prayer needs that you have, uh, Tom Richards and our prayer team would love the opportunity to pray with you this morning. And so feel free to come here to the front uh, or to our prayer room uh, just off to the side here. And uh, we'd love the opportunity to pray with you today as well. Fathers, again, happy Father's Day to you. And for all the guys that are here this morning, again, if you did not get them or if you just want another, we've got root beer floats waiting for you out by the cafe. Stop by and grab one of those. And you know what? Be kind. Hand one to your family as well. We got plenty. Uh, lastly, uh, just a reminder for you, as we continue in this series together, beginning next week, uh, we're going to move into the second part. It's entitled Jesus, Servant King, as we begin to look at the second part of the book of Mark together. I uh, hope that you will come and join us, but many of you have been participating in our reading ahead of time. Kind of give you a chapter to read before we come to church each Sunday. And uh, we have our new scripture reading plans that are out. These are at all the tables uh, when you walk in, and so be sure to grab one if you would like to participate in that. And also you can find it on our church app. So please be sure to check that out and join us. We're excited to continue get diving into God's word with you. Church family, thank you so much for coming and worshiping with us today. I pray that you would be blessed this week as you surrender your heart uh, fully to the Lord and experience all that he has for you. God bless you. Have a great week serving him.